Our guest today is former Justice of the High Court of Australia, the Honourable Michael Kirby, who has had an illustrious career, which includes serving as a president of the New South Wales Court of Appeal, the inaugural chairman of the Australian Law Reform Commission, and a judge in the Federal Court of Australia, and a commissioner for the UN Commission of Inquiry into Human Rights Abuses in North Korea, among many, many other coveted positions. Thank you, Mr Kirby, for taking the time to speak with us today. It's my privilege. Um, so with our first question and setting the tone for this podcast and the series, our focus is on social change. So in your perspective, what is social change and how does it intersect with concepts such as social justice or um, human rights? Social change involves alteration in uh, the laws, practices, attitudes uh, and uh, customs of society. Uh, social justice uh, has a moral uh, component. Uh, for example, uh, the creation of the Nazi state in Germany in uh, 1933 was undoubtedly a very large social change, but it wasn't uh, a forerunner to social justice. Social justice implies uh, the concept of norms that um, are fair, uh, just, and um, accessible to ordinary people. And that's why there is a, a real distinction between social change. It might be a change for the worse uh, and uh, social justice, which by definition is a change for the better in respecting, upholding, protecting the rights of uh, people who are affected. And in that vein, with um, continuing with this theoretical discussion about social justice, how does it differ from, say, human rights? I mean, there have been many commentators and academics who have some, sometimes said that human rights um, is a bit more of a sanitized version of social justice. That is, it's set by people who already have more power and they're just granting you things that they think are allowable. So, for example, Aaron Dutty Roy said in the uh, Sydney Peace Prize speech in 2004 that it's social justice for the rich but human rights for the poor. But on the other hand, um, human rights provides you a framework to actually work within. So how do you think that fits in with today's day and age and all the struggles that people are facing? In fact, um, the concept of universal human rights is not something that is granted by governments. Uh, it is not necessarily something that is expressed in law. In Australia, we don't have, for example, a whole series of human rights protections spelt out in our constitution or even in a, a federal statute, um, unlike most other countries. But um, the notion that human rights pre-existed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is insisted upon in a proper analyses of universal human rights. They inhere in people as human beings uh, and they are not dependent upon governments, although governments may make them more accessible, they may express them in words that can then be used to hold the fire to the feet of government and to insist that uh, universal human rights is 
protected and upheld. But the two concepts, though they overlapped, they're like circles that overlap one another, but they are not exactly the same. And in that um, sort of discussion about Australia not having a Bill of Rights, um, how do we manage to actually use human rights to further people's position in life? So whether it comes to refugees or it comes to um, land rights for Indigenous people, um, how has that framework assisted when it's not something government can be compelled um, to do um, by, for example, the judiciary or um, the media or activists or just uh, the public when they go to the polls um, every three years? Well, that's a, a very good question because the lack of a, a constitutional set of rights uh, has led uh, Australians and especially Australian lawyers to look elsewhere and to try to find uh, the local equivalent or the local expression of the universal human rights that have become such an important feature of the international community in our current age. Um, the adoption by the, you know, by the General Assembly of the United Nations in December 1948 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was something that Australia, one of the foundation members of the General Assembly and of the United Nations, uh, worked towards attaining. And uh, there's a great irony in the fact that in Australia, many of the fundamental human rights are protected, they're protected by the common law, but of course the common law can be overruled by statute. Uh, and in the matter of universal human rights, you can, in some instances, appeal to the statements in international um, uh, declarations uh, and in other statements of principle, including the statements in treaties that Australia has signed with the United Nations. So uh, we can use them, but that is itself a somewhat controversial uh, proposition in some quarters. Um, I attended a conference in Bangalore in India, uh, Bengaluru as it now is, uh, in 1988 for the purpose of trying with other judges of uh, high courts uh, around the world uh, particularly in uh, Commonwealth countries, to express the ground rules for the use of international human rights principles, uh, especially in the circumstances that there is no uh, constitutional norm that you can appeal to, uh, no provision of a statute that clearly applies, and no statement of the common law. Uh, the propositions advanced by the judicial group in Bangalore was that in such circumstances you could reach for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the other statements of human rights in order to assist in the interpretation of the Constitution, uh, the uh, explanation of a statute or the elaboration of a principle of the common law. But uh, the High Court of Australia has been rather resistant to that notion. Not always, because in the Mabo decision uh, in 175 Commonwealth Law Reports, 1 at 42, 
Justice Brennan, who wrote the leading uh, opinion in that case, said that uh, the one principle of universal human rights that cannot be uh, breached is the principle that people are equal and uh, that they do not lose that equality by reason of their race. Uh, and that he used as the principle to provide the key to unlock the door that permitted the High Court in that case to override 150 years of common law and to hold that uh, land rights uh, could not be denied to the Indigenous people, the First Nations people, uh, on the basis of the race, the Aboriginal uh, Torres Strait Islander race of the people affected, but uh, that that uh, statement of the old common law uh, had to be overruled and replaced by a racially neutral principle and indeed one that upholds the human rights of the Indigenous people to land and to the exercise of those rights according to their customs. So there's been a sort of inconsistency in the way this has been dealt with by courts. The Supreme Court of the United Kingdom only in the last weeks has uh, expressed a view which uh, is uh, somewhat hostile uh, in the uh, opinion of Lord Reed, President, uh, to the Bangalore idea. But I have no doubt that given time, that idea, which is a reflection of the very development of international law and of international law of human rights in recent decades will come to be accepted and will be uh, an important influence that judges and lawyers uh, look to when they come to understand the meaning of a statute, the meaning of the common law, and even the meaning of the Constitution of 1901. In terms of uh, the legal system on a domestic level and bringing change through that, one vehicle has been public interest litigation strategies. Um, and over, over the course of your career, you must have seen that being put into place either by your peers or from afar. Um, firstly, how would you define public interest litigation for our audience? And secondly, um, I'm curious about your thoughts as to whether you think it's legal change that inspires social change or if it's the other way around. Um, and if this is very case dependent? I think uh, it's an interactive mechanism of law. We lawyers like to think we're terribly important. We're the centre of the universe <laughs> and therefore we have uh, the keys to uh, advance the kingdom. And uh, many lawyers think that's the most important. And there's no doubt that the law can play a very important role and public interest litigation is a way that uh, ordinary people with legal problems and yet generally needing support from lawyers and mostly lawyers acting pro bono can bring cases to courts and by the authoritative decision of our courts can then see advances. Now, this is not something that is uh, very recent uh, even when I was a young lawyer and uh, was um, 
uh, elected the president of the Students' Representative Council at the University of Sydney, uh, I became involved in litigation involving students. Uh, and these, this was litigation often to challenge decisions where the student claimed to be a conscientious objector. And that was a very little case in the local court of petty sessions, as it was called then, the local court. And uh, this tiny little case, nonetheless, was advancing the principle uh, of uh, respect for people's conscientious objection to involvement in wars or uh, particularly the Vietnam War. Uh, and I remember when I was president of the SRC, we went down to a television studio uh, and we went through film footage uh, that was made available to us by the television studio, uh, which showed the circumstances of an arrest at uh, Wynyard Square in Sydney of students who were protesting against Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War and protesting against uh, the compulsory uh, obligation to perform uh, the uh, national service if your number came up in the ballot. And uh, this um, action, uh, again, a very tiny little action, it never made the headlines, no one ever saw it on television, uh, no one ever made a big fuss about it, but that's what I was doing as the president and later the honorary solicitor of the SRC of Sydney University. Um, and likewise, uh, there was a case in Walgett in New South Wales where Aboriginals were not allowed to go upstairs in the local cinema. They could go downstairs where there was lino on the floor and vinyl on the seats. But climbing up the grand and beautiful staircase to the cinema in Walgett and plonking yourself down in the velvet uh, seats uh, with carpet on the floor, that was impermissible. Aboriginals stay out. And uh, we gave support, uh, and I was briefed in the matter, to uh, the uh, students who hand in hand, this was a very symbolic thing, makes me emotional even to think back to it, uh, who walked up the grand staircase. The white students bought the cinema tickets, but uh, they walked up the staircase with local students, uh, not university students, because we had precious few of them uh, who were Aboriginal, uh, and uh, they were then arrested by police uh, for taking Aboriginals up. Uh, we were assured that the uh, Aboriginals would watch the same movie and they would not be interfered with and uh, it's quite nice downstairs, but uh, the students were arrested. Uh, some of them were law students, so an arrest and a record was a very bad thing. Uh, and so I briefed Gordon Samuels, later the Chancellor of UNSW, and he was a leading barrister, the president of the bar, and he did the case for nothing, went up to Walgett. We argued the case as a matter of law. In the end, we lost, but the magistrate did not uh, impose a criminal conviction. 
so, and a week after the decision of the magistrate, the owner of the cinema announced that discrimination against Aboriginals upstairs was over. And so things changed. The mm. moral of the story is, we can say these are just little things, uh, but our duty as human beings, our moral obligation, and above all, our professional duty as lawyers is to undertake such cases, bring them to courts, appeal to courts, do the very best of lawyering to try and convince the court. But even sometimes when you lose, you win. And that is a very important lesson I learned quite early in my career. I would have only been about your age at the time that happened. <laughs> this was about 19... Uh, 1962 or so. I was 23. Wow, that's incredible um, to hear. And I think it sort of goes back to the the whole theme of this podcast, which is hope, because, and I think this this goes back to our chats before we we recorded um, today's episode, about how it feels like there is so much that's wrong with the world. I mean, for instance, if you're looking at the, you know, around the 60s and onwards, there was the apartheid in South Africa, there was the Vietnam War, gay people were still, you know, persecuted by by our legal system. How did uh, lawyers such as yourself or other people who wanted to make a change really sort of see a light at the end of the, end of the tunnel? Is it really analogous to some of the issues we might see today? Um, and is the fact that we are so overwhelmed by so much information through the internet and social media a different environment to really grapple with your sense of identity and your sense of purpose as a lawyer or a change maker in the world compared to how it was when you were starting off as a lawyer? I don't think it's a diff- different in the slightest. Uh, we have our problems today. Take, for example, Afghanistan and the Taliban regime, the uh, retreat of the Western uh, countries all in a scramble, uh, the uh, many women judges who appealed uh, for protection, uh, the relative reluctance of Australia to protect everyone, the fact that the ambassador left Uh, leaving in the embassy the people who had trusted uh, in Australia to protect uh, the uh, local staff. Um, And now uh, the uh, International Bar Association, uh, of whose um, Human Rights Institute I was co-chair until very recently, um, adopted a policy to try to offer um, exit visas to those who were at special risk. And that included uh, women who had been judges, something which was uh, denied by uh, the Taliban in their former regime, uh, and also to gay uh, people in Afghanistan. We didn't give many visas. We are very parsimonious with our visas, but... Mm. uh, we can make a a great fuss and civil society can make a fuss and organisations such as the International Bar Association, its Human Rights Institute, but also Amnesty International uh, and uh, the International Commission of Jurists uh, and the local Council for Civil Liberties, uh, the PIAC, the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, which has had a great 
participation from UNSW, uh, all of these were mobilised and uh, they're still working to improve uh, the situation of human rights in the world today. And that is not always easy and it often fails. And, but it, unless you get off your backside and try to do something, nothing is going to happen and people are going to suffer great injustices. And that's why um, I found, the secret I found was to join the Council for Civil Liberties um, and the ICJ and Amnesty and so on. They were not very busy in Australia at that time. Uh, and the political parties were often very ambivalent about the types of issues that we raised. Uh, but that was what I did. I joined the CCL. And, uh, you know, um, when I look back on those meetings of the Council for Civil Liberties, there we all were in a rather dingy office in the city. Uh, and uh, if I look back on it, virtually all of those who were at the meetings, uh, chaired by Justice Robert Hope, who was later my colleague on the Court of Appeal, all, virtually all of them or most of them became judges. Uh, it's a good thing. They became troublemakers. They became visible. They were standing up and they were often uh, reluctantly admired for doing this and for pushing our society, which is a prosperous, well-governed, um, sort of reluctant type of society into doing the right thing. I think Australians do like the right thing to be done. They're sometimes worried about the cost and they're sometimes worried about the consequences, but uh, I think there is a deep well of support with young people with enthusiasm and dedication and cleverness to bring their skills to bear, to bring justice to uh, the disadvantaged. And I think a, a good lesson to take away from that is, I mean, it's really easy to feel overwhelmed by so many different issues, but we do have to get involved and focus on at least one thing and, and take initiative. But stepping away from the law for a second, um, business is another very powerful way of making a, a difference. Um, so let's take animal welfare, for instance. There's been a high growth in consumer demand for so-called imitation meats, so, for example, Beyond Meat, um, and increasing market activity when it comes to alternatives to leather, for example, all the research that's going into mushroom leather. Um, but I'm quite curious from a philosophical perspective. So whereas the ethical argument for less meat consumption, for example, hasn't really energized people to the same extent as the environmental argument has. Is there a risk in terms of shifting away from the ethical foundation of this sort of consumer um, demand? Or do we have to be more results focused and not as focused on principles? And other analogies, for example, people who might argue that we need more refugees because that can assist us with our economic prosperity, especially in the regions. but Others might say, well, that goes away from the principle of refugee protection and our duty towards protecting people. How do you feel about that? I think there is a little bit of both. I think there is principle and there is pragmatism. A.J. Brown, in his book on my life, uh, rather cruelly gave it the uh, subtitle, 
principles and a pragmatism. And okay, my life has had its pragmatic elements uh, and uh, I'm not ashamed of those, but it's also had its moments of principle uh, and I'm certainly not ashamed of those. And fortunately, we live in a country where uh, the judiciary is not corrupted. It's, it's a very rare thing in Australia for the judiciary to be corrupted. Uh, and uh, this means that our judges, you may not like what they write, but at least you have the knowledge in the back of your mind that these are honest, hardworking, uh, serious people who are trying to reach the decision as they understand the law. They may not have the same view of the law as I do, uh, and that's how uh, it works out in life. Maybe if they had had my experience with the law, maybe if, like me, they had grown up being gay and knowing that the law was against you and mm -hmm. was highly punitive and was lying like a trap in wait to snap your head off and to punish you and throw away the key. So, or if you were Aboriginal, to uh, remove from you equality before the law simply because of your Aboriginality. Or with women, removing equality and imposing laws that were unequal uh, for women and so forth. So I think uh, you've got to do things. You've got to get off your backside and do things. And uh, I have to say, speaking completely candidly, I didn't do much about sexuality when I was a young person. Nobody did. The, if I think back on the Council for Civil Liberties meetings, we talked a lot about Aboriginals. We talked a lot about white Australia. We talked a lot about women's rights. Um, Refugees were not such a big issue there. We talked about conscientious objection, the Vietnam War, uh, nuclear weapons and so on, but we said nothing about gay rights. And I said nothing about gay rights, even though it was something that was very much affected me. And it's led me to be really uh, uh, conscious of the fact that you have, sometimes you have to be brave and you've got to be strong and you've got to take risks that you'll upset people, including maybe your parents. Uh, but you can do things in a loving and respectful way, but you can stand up for uh, what you conscientiously believe is the right thing. And I wish I had done more when I was growing up. It's getting a bit late in the day for me, but uh, at mm. law school, I never put my hand up and asked why did we not recognise Aboriginal title? Never. No one did. Silence. Likewise, white Australia. Likewise, women's inequality. And especially the no-no subject of gay rights. All of those things I was silent about. But then I got into the Council for Civil Liberties and we started to talk about gay rights. And it, it was a lot of people, including very fine people, uh, were opposed to that. They thought it was disgusting and they didn't really want that. They had religious uh, preachers, as they're still there, uh, sounding off against gay people as an abomination. Uh, but um, looking back, I wish I had been stronger and earlier.
but if I had been, I think the truth of the matter is I would not be sitting here being interviewed as a former president of the Court of Appeal and former Justice of the High Court. So you have to be a little bit strategic, but you've also got to be uh, principled. And um, on the last week that I served as a Justice of the High Court, I did two big things. One, I sat in the Wurrigal case, which was the challenge to the legality of constitutionality of the Northern Territory intervention. Very important case. I hope it's not forgotten. And two, I went to launch at Sydney University a book on animal welfare law in Australia and New Zealand. And uh, after that night, I'd read this book. I had no idea the conditions of slaughtering and the cruelty to sentient animals. And I have not eaten any meat since that time. Uh, I tried to persuade my nephew, who was about your age, to do this. And he said, I know I should, I know I should, uh, but I, I just like the taste of meat too much. And um, so you've got to start somewhere and you've got to try to influence others. I strongly support what business has done uh, sure. with meat-like substitutes. Uh, and I can affirm that uh, at least some samples of uh, uh, vegetable uh, bacon, for example, tastes so much like the real thing that I feel guilty when I taste it and enjoy it in an omelet. Uh, it's, it's a question, should I not even go there on the basis that this is really breaching the principle? This is what you're interested in. Mm. But if it gets people out of meat eating, reduces the slaughter of so many sentient animals, uh, and improves the treatment of those animals that are in this uh, regime, uh, then it's a very good thing. And it is growing. It's, it's growing quite rapidly. And I recommend it to anybody who listens to this podcast, uh, if you like the taste of it, then you can take um, uh, artificial bacon and it is exactly the same taste. It's amazing. It's made out of soy. I don't know how they do it. It's made by the Sanitarium Company, which are the Seventh-day Adventists, I think, and they are strict vegetarians. And um, it, they're not, therefore, using um, live animal extracts of any kind, but they've found a way to make soy uh, into an animal-tasting food. And we should all be eating more of it and less of a real meat. Yes, I mean, in terms of the results that, uh, you know, these imitation meat companies have gotten and the amount of transitions they managed to foster, no one can really argue with the numbers when it comes to taking a more pragmatic approach, especially with a practice that is so deeply entrenched um, in our culture. In terms of looking at social change, in terms of the individual level, so looking at just what, you know, I could do or my friends could do on a day-to-day -day basis, we're, I'm quite aware of the fact there's a strong emphasis on social change in legal education. Um, I didn't really see that 
come through in my commerce degree, for instance, is not really something that's explored as much in other areas of study, unfortunately. But there are various ways you can make a difference that doesn't mean you have to be a lawyer. What lessons would you pass on to people who see a social issue that should be addressed? So whether that's regarding water and soil pollution in a regional mining town, or for example, um, with the stories that's coming out right now about people in the Park Hotel in Melbourne, um, who've been in our immigration detention system for over nine years, what um, would you pass on to them that you've seen um, happen, whether it's through, um, for example, your friends with the Freedom Rides um, back when you were at um, UCID as a student, or any other um, movements that have taken place since? Well, the lesson is to be a joiner, to get involved so that you begin to see issues. If you don't see issues, you can't really be morally um, um, criticised for being quiet about them. But if you see issues and you begin to discuss them with your colleagues, and then you see a way through the issues, and that way will not always be as easy as artificial meat, but it will often be standing up for what is right, even though that is going to upset people, people close to you even. So uh, I, I think uh, this is the lesson of my life. And curiously, the fact that I was, uh, if you like to call it this, a kind of respectable troublemaker. I was the <laughs> president of the SRC. I was a law student. I was pretty obviously on the way to the golden path for success in the legal provision. And yet I began to make trouble uh, with my fellow students. Uh, and um, I think that helped me to be noticed. Um, for example, Neville Rand, who was then a, a young up and coming uh, QC and a, um, a, a member of the state parliament, um, he'd heard about me uh, in the media because the media was always attacking me and saying I was a pompous git and that I should come <laughs> down from my high horse and, and uh, they might have had a point, but uh, I, uh, I, I got noticed. And uh, I'm not saying that's why so many people who were involved in the Council for Civil Liberties um, were appointed judges, but not everybody wants to be a judge. And, and some people increasingly nowadays don't want to be judges. But if you want to contribute to our society uh, by ultimately being considered for judicial office, um, then maybe you, if you join a political party, you'll get noticed by people. But if you are a person who has been noted in general society, including by politicians who have the ultimate say in Australia for the appointment of the judiciary, then that is, that's a byproduct. It's not a reason for getting involved, but it is a consequence. And it's just, just amazing to look at the lists of the Council for Civil Liberties, circa 1965 to 75. They all ended up distinguished judges. Uh, hmm. and, uh, and it's not a bad thing in a country to infuse a number of people with that outlook in uh, the judiciary. I probably would have had the outlook anyway because I had been, I was gay. And that made me 
sensitive to injustice and not liking it and wanting to do something about it. But starting on the ground floor, maybe even in the basement, is uh, a difficult step and it must often seem as though it leads nowhere and it requires a lot of extra work and you don't have to do it. You could be out there um, send, sending off text messages and uh, social media and all the other things that you young people do, but give a bit of time to disadvantaged people and there will always be disadvantaged people. And um, if you do that, then it's likely that your life will be fuller, your life will be richer in the uh, spiritual sense, and also that you'll make a contribution to your own well-being and to that of your society. Hmm. I think there's a very good um, lessons to take away from there, especially in terms of taking initiative um, and just being, being a joiner and getting involved, because we all we all have the right to do so. We all should take ownership of uh, changes in our society. What I want to end on... You, you, you're, you're doing so in this podcast series, <laughs> uh, and it's a good thing. And I expect if I hang around for another 20 years, which I'm intending to do, that I will see you in a, in a leadership position. But if you don't get there, or if you don't want to get there, or you think the sacrifices personally are too great, then that's good, that's fine. But at least you've, you've made a contribution back to society. And that's what uh, we should all do, and especially young lawyers. I think young economic students and commerce students should have their minds open to social issues. Business is doing so. And maybe that's something, Sanjay, that you should be doing. Uh, and I'll come with you because I have a Bachelor of Economics degree from Sydney University. And we should go and say you should be introducing social justice issues uh, because it's going to be increasingly important to business people, uh, men and women in business. And that's what we should uh, get that message over. And, and with that, you already foreshadowed one of our later guests. So we'll be looking into pro bono done at law firms and with the emerging culture of corporate social responsibility, especially, for example, with energy policies and environmental um, issues. It's been the private sector that's led the way rather than government, um, at least in Australia in the last couple of decades. Um, so, yeah, I'm, ve I'm very keen uh, for those discussions as well. And thanks so much for the kind words. What I'm also very interested in, though, um, to finish up is uh, who would you say is a role model you've looked up to when you were sort of um, at uni or you're on the trajectory to your meteoric rise through public office up to public office and what's one person or what's one organisation you've got your eye on to change things um, in the coming years? Well, first of all, you say my rise was meteoric. To me, it was a very slow-moving meteor. At least that's, that's how it seemed to me at the time. Uh, and um, uh, you can't expect uh, everything to work out uh, beautifully and quickly. And, and I don't think I did that, but, and I wasn't doing it in order to be noticed. But I was just saying that this is a consequence of 
being a joiner and being involved in the social issues of the day. For the people whom I admired, uh, they certainly uh, would have included Lionel Murphy. Now, Lionel was a very unusual man, and he was a person um, who liked me. I never quite knew why he liked me, because he was a great party goer, and I was always a party pooper. And he liked me, and he gave me opportunities, but he was also a fresh thinker. And this is the problem in the law, thinking freshly, challenging yourself. Uh, what is a fresh insight about this area of the law? And what does this feel like to people who are on the receiving end of the law? Um, I think uh, Chief Justice Mason was a very great judge in Australia. He was the judge when Mabo was decided. He joined uh, with Justice uh, Brennan and Justice McHugh in the key reasons in that case. Justice Dean was a very great lawyer. Uh, and uh, looking at the other people who intersected with my life, Julia Stone had a very big impact on me at law school. So look to your academic leaders and those who uh, are teaching how we have to make a contribution to improving uh, the law and improving social justice. Uh, I mean, there are many people, uh, many women who have greatly influenced my, my life and I'm grateful to them all. Uh, as to the future, uh, I do think animal welfare is going to be an increasing subject because as you've said, it's very important for climate change issues, but it's also important for uh, the uh, issue of um, uh, principle that is involved. Uh, I, I believe that um, refugees and living up to the principles of the Refugee Convention and Protocol, that's extremely important. And as you've said, uh, that can be argued both as a matter of principle and also as a matter of pragmatism in a country which has an increasing aged population, which it doesn't always treat very well. But what one of the issues that I've tried to speak of and engage people with uh, is nuclear weapons and nuclear disarmament uh, and uh, getting uh, the countries with nuclear weapons to surrender them and those that don't have them to adhere to the principle and the letter of the non-proliferation treaty. You know, I got them in the Institute of uh, Human Rights in the International Bar Association to put this on the agenda of the last big conference that we had uh, in Rome. This was before COVID really struck. And uh, whereas sessions on uh, the principle of um, bias in arbitrations and matters of that kind packed the conference hall, uh, for the session which we had on nuclear weapons, I think we got about a dozen people, a dozen people, even though there were some leading uh, speakers, it just doesn't engage with people, no doubt, because they think 
what can I do about nuclear weapons? Well, the lesson of my life is what you can do is start making a fuss and start putting things onto the political agenda so the cautious, nervous politicians cannot avoid the issue anymore. If we don't cure and solve the nuclear weapons issue, you can forget about all the others because mm. the nuclear weapons will see the end of this species on Earth. And that's why the present is a very worrying time with two leaders who have an investment, maybe three leaders who have an investment in being tough guys. Well, the days of tough guys really went out with Hiroshima and we have to find ways uh, that even with horrible countries like North Korea, uh, we can find a way to um, uh, remove the danger of nuclear weapons which are so devastating in their impact and so long-term in their consequences. So there are just a few ideas, but there are plenty more, and I'm sure the young people who are listening to this podcast will uh, have ideas of their own, which don't even occur to me. But if you ask, what do you hope you can continue to contribute to, uh, I would say uh, nuclear weapons uh, removal from our midst. And I don't think that's something that cannot be tackled because it's just too big. It requires leadership from politicians and a belief that the people who elect them are deeply concerned about it. And I think we're going to see that issue played out uh, in the questions that are raised by the situations on the border of Ukraine and uh, Russia. So plenty to do, uh, lots of ideas. Don't be boring. Open your mind to new ideas. Uh, be brave. Be braver than I was. Speak up for the things that affect you and don't be ashamed of it. Uh, and I hope that uh, your life will be as rich uh, in spiritual terms as mine has been. With that, thank you so much for joining us for our first um, episode of the podcast, uh, Michael Kirby. Uh, we really appreciate your presence on, on this episode, and I'm sure our audience will take a lot away fr from the lessons that we've learned today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sanjay.